All right. Uh, do you know those stickers uh, that everyone's putting on the back of their car if they're a runner? You know, if you see a runner on the road, they don't have to tell you they're a runner, right? They'll tell you with the sticker on the back of their car. Do you know the stickers I'm talking about? You've seen these on the backs of cars before? Has anyone noticed other cars on the road with them? Okay, just checking. All right, um, you drive around town, you see these all over the place, right? The 13.1, saying how many kilometers they've run, or 26.2, which I think is a marathon. Um, the, the biggest one I've seen is one that says 50K, right? Someone ran a long way. All right, so what I wanted to do when I first started seeing these around town is I wanted to print my own uh, and do some ludicrous number. I wanted to do like 92.8, put it on a sticker, put it on the back of my car, and I told Rachel, I wanted to do that just to see if anyone would believe that I actually ran three marathons in a row back to back. And she looked me up and down and she said, well, the problem with that, David, is that you're so skinny, people would believe it. Okay? So see, my wife does believe in me. Y'all didn't know. Okay, I tell you that this morning because we are covering a marathon of ground today. Okay, this morning we are covering 33 verses of scripture, and there is zero chance in this that I will talk about everything Paul covers in this chapter and a half. Right, but the reason that I'm choosing to do this is because Paul makes one large sustained argument starting in chapter 14, verse 1 of Romans, and he carries it all the way through the end of the scripture that we just had read for us a few moments ago. And I didn't feel like I could split this up into multiple lessons and still keep the integrity of Paul's argument and hold it all together. A better preacher would probably preach three or four lessons on this and break it up and cover all of the ground, but he's not here, and so we're going to do this all in one sermon this morning. Okay, notice the way Paul starts this. Chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. All right, before we get into interpreting this text, I want to give you two prequel points just to get this started. Two things we need on the table as we talk about this. Okay, and the first one is, we don't know the exact issue that Paul is addressing. All right, we don't know the exact situation for what's going on here. Paul mentions several disputable matters in this text. Okay, he talks about eating meat, he talks about eating vegetables, he talks about drinking wine later in the text. He talks about how some people would observe some days as holy and some wouldn't. Okay, is he talking about meat sacrificed to idols like he does in 1 Corinthians? I don't know. Is he talking about the Jewish Christians insisting on following the kosher laws like he does in Galatians? Maybe. Okay, is he talking about how different Gentile groups would avoid certain foods because in their culture you didn't eat certain things and sometimes you did? Maybe. Okay, and with the holy days he mentions, is he talking about Jewish holy days like Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? Possible. Okay, or is he talking about secular holidays that the Gentiles celebrated? Okay, Roman holidays that was part of their growing up. 
Okay, kind of like we celebrate the 4th of July. And maybe it's that the Jews didn't want to celebrate these pagan holidays and thought it was wrong for the Gentiles to keep celebrating holidays that were dedicated to these other gods. Okay, we don't know. All right, my opinion is that this text is intentionally broad and it's intentionally vague and Paul doesn't get too deeply into the specific situation because that's not what matters. What matters as we study this text is the behaviors and the attitudes that Paul tells us to have when we argue about stuff with our brothers and sisters in the church. Okay, So any attempt to reconstruct all the details of what's going on won't get you there. Okay? All right, number two, second prequel point. Paul is addressing disputable matters. Okay, this text is not about things that are clearly right or wrong. In verse 1, he says, let me tell you about disputable issues. Okay, this is not Paul saying, just let your conscience be your guide. And whatever your conscience says is okay for you to do, then that's just great and wonderful. And you can't judge me. Okay? So, you can't say, well, I think because of my freedom in Christ and my ultimate grace, I can steal my neighbor's stuff and you can't judge me for it. No, stealing is sinful, and yes, I can judge it as wrong. No one who's ever read very much of Paul's writings would ever accuse Paul of being soft on sin. Paul never hesitates to call out sin when he sees it. And so that is not what's going on here. What Paul is doing in chapter 14, the first part of 15, is he's addressing taboos. He's addressing things that are disputable, that some people feel in their conscience is okay, and some people feel in their conscience is not okay. Now, I say all of this, and then I will say there are two easy ways to teach this text. There are two very simple ways that I have heard Romans 14 and 15 interpreted before. And my problem with these two ways is that I think they are simplistic and I think they miss the point. Avoid overly simplistic readings of Scripture. Here's the first easy way that we can do this and and it loses its punch. And the first thing is is we make it trivial. What we do is we interpret this text and we make it about stuff that doesn't really matter. Okay, which color should we paint the building? Should we send money to the missionary in China or should we send the money to the missionary in Russia? Okay, do we have to dress up at church and look good like I do? Or can you just come in whatever you want like Robbie does, right? Just come, okay. But I look good, Myra, come on. Okay. Anyway. Let me give you a more relevant example of this before Robbie derails me completely. Okay, something that's somewhat trivial, but that we're not even arguing about. Okay, if it was all up to me, we would do communion after the sermon on every Sunday. Okay, the way we typically, I know several of you looked up like, what? Okay, if it was all up to me, if I was the only one in charge and my opinion was the only one that mattered, which I'm continually told my opinion doesn't really matter, but if my opinion was the only one that mattered, What we would do every Sunday is we would hear a word from the Lord first, then we would have communion with God, okay? As far as we can tell, that's how the early church did it. I can make a really good theological case for doing it that way. That's the way I would like to do it. We do it the opposite of that, all right? Now, is there anything anywhere in Scripture that tells you what order you're supposed to do this in? Not at all. 
So it's completely disputable, and we can do it either way, and it's perfectly fine. I'm not going to let the order of worship be the ground that I choose to die on. Fair enough? All right. We can use this text to say, don't argue about trivial stuff. And that's fine, but I think we miss the deeper point, the harder point of what Paul's telling us to do. Okay? Don't make this text just about trivial stuff. All right, number two, second way we can miss this is we use this text as a trump card to kill any change. Okay? We use this as the ultimate trump card to say, well, if I don't like something in church, I can pull out Romans 14 and say, well, I'm going to try to keep everybody at church from doing this because I don't like it. All right, when I was a teenager, the church that I was at had a mid-sized controversy over whether or not you could clap after someone got baptized. Okay, whenever someone would get baptized, all of the kids and the young people would clap. Okay, we thought we're supposed to be celebrating, right? But there was a sizable group of older members at the church who didn't like it. Okay, they grew up in a church where you didn't clap because it wasn't respectful and it wasn't reverent. And we're supposed to show reverence to God, and clapping is not that. Okay, and so what they did is they said because of Romans 14, and because they didn't like the clapping, we were supposed to give in to the weaker brethren, and that meant we couldn't clap anymore after baptisms. All right. I vividly remember, I was about 15 years old, and because I was a problem, I had an attitude even then, right? I know you find that hard to believe. But I remember at 15 going to one of the elders of the church and saying, okay, so if we don't clap based on Romans chapter 14, then you're telling me that the oldest members of this church are the weakest in the faith, and the younger members of the church are the strongest in the faith. Are you really telling me that our teenagers at church are the strongest members of our faith? Right? I have a whole lot of respect for that elder that I talked to. Because he took my questions very seriously, talked to me for a long time. As a church, we talked for a long time, and he really cared about everybody there. Okay? Now, this passage of Scripture is not teaching that if a group of people don't like something that happens in a church, that they can pull out this verse and kill it. Okay? I am very certain that Paul never intended this passage to be a tool for the least mature Christians to stop a church from doing stuff. Okay, and just keep in mind then, if you want to point to Romans chapter 14 and say, hey, here's my reason for why a church shouldn't do something, then what you're doing is you're claiming that you're the weakest person in the faith. Okay? So if you want to use that, just be willing to also admit that you're the weakest in the faith. Fair enough? I see four people nodding at me, okay? Does that make sense? Don't use this as a bludgeon, all right? Okay, so what do we do if we want to make this text to be about something meaningful, right? We don't want it to be trivial. We also don't want this text to be used as a bludgeon that keeps churches from ever doing anything. Okay, otherwise we'd all still be having services in Latin, right? Okay, this isn't what this is about. So what do we do? Okay, I think it comes down to the attitudes... It comes down to the behaviors that Paul commands us to have as we are arguing with each other, uh, which any of you who ever grew up with siblings know that arguments are going to happen, right? So when we do argue over disputable stuff, how are we supposed to do it? All right, the first thing that Paul says, number one, he says, don't judge. Okay, notice verse 10, 
the first part of it. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? You know, I think if you really want to understand most arguments that people get into, okay, and this is in any context, right, if you really want to understand what an argument is about, the key is to ask, what are people in this situation afraid of? I think our biggest motivator in arguments is fear, right? And this is true in business, it's true among friends, it's true especially in the church. I think most of us, if we were truly upfront about what our fears were, if we could identify our fears and lay those out on the table when we're having arguments and discussions, it would make the argument make a whole lot more sense. Does that work? Right. I think when Paul says, especially to the weak, he says, don't judge. Okay, the fear of the weak in an argument about disputable matters is that it's going to be anything goes. Okay. You know, I remember hearing the phrase growing up, that's a slippery slope. Have you heard that before? Okay, you've heard the slippery slope argument. Right? In other words, for example, when you're dating... You need to draw a line before holding hands, okay? Because holding hands leads to kissing, and that leads to dancing, which leads to babies, right? It's a slippery slope, okay? And if you want evidence of this, you can just point to the pregnant teenager over there and say, hey, it started with holding hands, right? So where does it lead? Babies. All right, so when we're afraid of something, our natural inclination is to turn more conservative, it's to turn more legalistic, and it's to draw lines so that we can protect ourselves. That's our fear. You know, I was once part of a church that was talking about doing some different things on Sunday nights. Okay, our Sunday night attendance was just atrocious. We'd have a handful of people after the Sunday morning assembly was completely full. Sunday nights were almost dead, so we were talking about what else could we do with Sunday nights. Maybe we'll do some small groups. Maybe we'll do some service nights where we go out into the community. What else could we do with our time and our effort and our resources instead of a traditional Sunday night service? Okay, and several of our members who had spent their entire lives doing Sunday night church, they just did not want to do it. Okay, they were afraid that if we changed it, then we would lose Sunday night church forever. Okay, to which I said, yeah, I hope we lose Sunday night church forever. Okay, but this was a very real fear for them. Because okay, they didn't know where this would go. Right? They had seen other churches who started by doing something different on Sunday nights. That led to something else, which led to something else. And now, can you believe it that some people in the Lord's church just sit at home on Sunday nights and do nothing? Isn't that terrible? Okay, they believed that the church needed to meet on Sunday evenings, okay, which is perfectly fine. Okay, but there was a few of those people in some of those conversations I had that they judged people who didn't make the same decision that they did. Okay, those people over there should be meeting on Sunday nights. Now, this often happens in churches, right? Especially regarding worship uh, especially regarding moral judgment calls. Okay, we all have to make judgments, and we make a judgment call on what we're going to do, and our natural tendency as humans is to judge people who make a different decision than the one we did. Okay, after all, if I've made this decision, then it's clearly the best one, so someone making a different call is making a decision that's not as good as mine. Okay, it's easy for us, it's natural for us to judge people when they make a different move than what we made. 
Here's the thing. We all draw lines on what's appropriate and what's not. We all make judgment calls. We have to. Paul's point is, don't judge someone who's made a different judgment call than you have on something that's disputable. In Scripture, we're given a lot of latitude in worship. Now, in worship, I am pro whatever keeps us participatory. I am anti whatever makes worship more performance-oriented. Other churches worship in ways that I think make it more of a performance and less participatory. If I was in charge, I would have made a different decision. But I'm not in charge. And so I'm not going to judge the church down the street that does it differently than what I think is best. That makes sense? Don't judge. All right. Number two. Now he turns from addressing those who are the weaker in the faith to those who are wanting to be more permissive. He calls them stronger in this particular context. Okay, number two, he says, don't show contempt. Okay, the second part of the verse, verse 10, he says, or why do you treat them with contempt? Right, if the fear of the weak in the argument is that anything goes, the fear of the strong is that it's going to be nothing goes. Another one of our natural inclinations as people, uh, if the first one, if our first natural inclination is to judge people that make different decisions than we do, our second natural inclination is to show contempt for people who don't know as much as we do. Okay, it's pretty easy for us to show contempt. Um, during this last election cycle, I got kind of caught up in the news, right? I would spend a little time each day reading the news, reading all the prognostications from all of the experts on how the election was going to go. And one of the common themes I noticed across all the different publications I was looking at is that most people, most reporters who cover elections tend to be a little bit arrogant. Okay? And they'd say, well, here's my election model, and can you believe that not everybody agrees with my election model? Okay? And a lot of people are very ignorant about how this works, but let me tell you the truth. And then they'd give you their spin on everything that was going on. Now, what was really funny is right after the election, after all their models were completely wrong, the same people were publishing pieces going, I can't believe that all these other ignorant people missed it so badly, right? Like, you were just as arrogant as they were, right? But what were they doing? They were saying, well, we know more, we're the experts, we're the ones who are enlightened, and can you believe those poor ignoramuses, those rubes who don't know as much as we do, right? And they were treating people with contempt, If you have a natural inclination to show contempt for people who are more conservative than you are, then this is Paul addressing you. Don't show contempt. Man, can you believe all those ignorant people who still think we need Sunday night church? How can they be so backward, so stuck in the past? Why would that be inappropriate? Okay, A couple reasons. One, I used to be one of those people. Okay, And two, those are my brothers and sisters. For them, it was a matter of conscience to go to church on Sunday night, and they were doing it with a pure heart, fully for the Lord, because they believed in serving their Lord, and they loved Him dearly, and I should love Him too. Right? Don't show contempt, and don't judge. Number three, do what you do for the Lord. And notice verse 22. He says, so whatever you believe about these things, Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. 
But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. All right, let me get controversial now, uh, again, because it's always easier to get forgiveness than permission. All right, I spent a long time this week trying to think up a good example for what what Paul is talking about here, and honestly, I can't think of a better one for our culture than the one he uses in this text. Because if you look up just two verses above this one, in verses 20 and 21, Paul lays out an issue that I think speaks beautifully to this exact verse. Okay? And he talks about the drinking of wine. All right? Now, think about drinking wine. I can make a really good case for you why we should drink wine. Okay? First off, the first miracle that Jesus performs is what? Water to wine. He goes to a wedding and he makes wine. And when he makes wine, does he make bad wine? No. He makes the best wine. I guarantee you he's not making Welch's. Okay? He makes good wine. They celebrate with it and they enjoy it. Later on in your New Testament, Paul commands Timothy, take a little wine because you've got an upset stomach. Why? Because it's good for you. Doctors today recommend that we have a daily glass of wine. Why? Because it's good for you. It's part of God's creation. God intended for us to use it for our enjoyment. I can make a really good case for you that we should drink wine. I can make a really good case against drinking wine. Do you know how much damage alcoholism does to families? Do you know how many millions of families are torn apart because it's an addictive drug? Do you know how many places in Scripture warn against drunkenness? Why even mess with that when it's so easy in our culture with a thousand different drink options to just abstain from it? Why would you even want to go down that road? Okay, so here's the thing. If it's okay in your mind to drink wine, then fine. Just be careful that you're not causing someone else pain with it. Okay, if it's not okay in your mind to drink wine then it would be sinful for you to do so because you're violating your conscience. Paul says whether you do or you don't, you make sure that you're doing it for the Lord and in love to your brothers and sisters around you. Whatever you do, your conscience better line up with it and you better be doing it because you believe it's the right thing to do. Whatever you do, do it for the Lord. All right, number four. Paul next says to bear with each other. Okay, skip down to 15, go to verse 1. He says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. As Paul so often does, he points to the example of Jesus, and he says, in your conduct with each other, we'll get a whole lot farther if we think, what would Jesus do in this situation? What kind of love did Jesus show for people around him? Am I showing that same kind of love for people around me? All right, once upon a time, I was driving through West Texas, and I went through a little town called Muleshoe, okay, Muleshoe, Texas. All right, population, you can see on the sign, is a little over 4,000, okay? And it's one of those West Texas towns that's shrinking, so it's probably smaller than that today. 
right? And I had to actually drive through the town twice because I went back to get these pictures that I'm about to show you because this was so amazing to me. I think I may have used this in a Bible class before, so this may be familiar to some of you, uh, but this is just brilliant in a terrible way. Okay, as you're driving through this little West Texas town of Muleshoe, you see a series of signs introducing you to the town from the various churches in town. Okay, go to this first one. All right, the First Baptist Church welcomes you. We have a place for you, First Baptist of Muleshoe. The next sign in the road was the First Assembly of God. They want to welcome you to Muleshoe. You can go to the First Assembly of God Church. The Methodists have their sign on the road too. Methodists welcome you to Muleshoe. Go to the next one. The Catholic Church welcomes you. Here's the times for all their mass. Uh, and then there's the Church of Christ, a family united in Christ. Right? That's their slogan. It's right on their board. They've got a very pretty sign coming into town. And then shortly after them, you've got the sign for the second Church of Christ in the city, the thriving metropolitan area of Muleshoe, Texas. Now, I have no idea what's gone on in the history of this community. Uh, I don't know why there is a need for there to be two churches of Christ in a community of less than 5,000 people. All I know is that there are two churches of Christ in Muleshoe, Texas. I can only imagine that if we truly had that Christ-like attitude that Paul tells us to at the end of Romans chapter 15, and he says, really love your brother, don't let disputable matters be what divides you, learn how to act with humility, don't judge each other, don't treat each other with contempt, I think if we were truly doing the Jesus thing, there wouldn't be these two signs. Fair enough? You know, I love that the first line of our mission statement is a loving family. I love that we hold that up as a value, as who we want to be, how we want to get along with each other, what kind of relationships we want to have. And I know I've said it numerous times before, but I think we truly are a loving family here. I think we do treat each other like brothers and sisters, uh, in both the good ways of that and sometimes the bad ways of that, right? Sometimes we can fight like brothers and sisters too, and that's okay so long as we recognize that we are in the same family, that we love Jesus first, and that we're committed to being in this family together. All right, at this time we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. During the singing of this song, we as the church want to be here for you. During the song, I will be down front, one of our shepherds will be down front, we would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. Uh, before we sing that invitation song, though, I'd like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.